Previously on American Thought Leaders. We've never vaccinated people and boosted them multiple times a year. So we do not know how the immune system is going to react to so much boosting because the vaccine developers did not study it. In part one of my interview with Brownstone Institute's Dr. Paul Alexander, an expert in evidence-based medicine and clinical epidemiology, we discussed the data on natural immunity and the failures of lockdown policies. Now in part two, he shares the incredible story of how he was recruited into the Trump administration as a Canadian and at a time when the U.S.-Canada border was completely shut. It's like a movie, a small island boy, black suburban vehicle, I sat down in it. And the bureaucratic backlash he faced, especially after he opposed school closures and advocated for early outpatient treatment. They are going to pick a line that you've written and they're going to create a story around that line. They take your life and they try to burn you down. And he breaks down why he believes mandating COVID vaccines for children is unethical, unscientific, and dangerous. If you say these vaccines are safe for my children, remove the liability protection. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Jan Kellek. Before we start, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, American Hartford Gold. As you may have heard, American Thought Leaders was demonetized by YouTube, and after many months, their rather opaque appeals process has really led nowhere. Yet there are still companies like American Hartford Gold that value freedom of speech and honest discourse, and are sponsoring shows like ours. With inflation on the rise, investing in gold is another option to diversify your assets. American Hartford Gold is a patriotic, family-owned company that not only sells precious metals right to your front door, they can help you deposit gold into a retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k. They've got an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and right now they have a promotion where they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. You can just call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or you can text AMERICAN to 65532. Thank you, American Hartford Gold, for sponsoring American Thought Leaders. Let's jump to your work in the administration. Just tell me about your work in the administration and what you saw. Here I am. I come from the islands originally. And, um, you know, I have some family in Toronto who aren't well health-wise. So I, um, I'm taking care of them there. And one day, um, WHO Geneva, Pan American Health DC, sent me an email and, you know, we were in this discussion and they said, you know, because of the particular skills that you have, uh, we'd like you to work as a consultant um, in developing a uh, training program for low and middle income countries across the world. So I was doing that from about mid-2019 with WHO, PAHO DC. And then around January, when the cases began, when there were some images of uh, people dropping dead in Lombardia, Italy, and parts of China, um, WHO PAHO said, we want you to pivot your role now to be our COVID advisor. So I became in February, the Pan American Health Organization, WHO's evidence-based sensitive advisor, principal. They had no infrastructure in place yet. Why me? I was asked myself that because I think because of my education at McMaster, um, it's a very uh, niche skill, a particular set of skill in evidence-based research. I've always told people that my master program is probably the best in the world. I had the privilege of schooling there under Dr. Gayat. I learned from him. And so I took that position. So I, I actually was rolling up all of the science and the data for WHO 
Paho from February, March. Then around the end of April, the beginning of May, I got a telephone call while I was in Toronto. And uh, the person on the other line said, you know, we are calling from the U.S. administration, the White House. Um, we're talking on behalf of the White House and uh, we want to speak to you. I, I thought it was Ashton Kushner, someone punking me. I said, well, what do you mean the U.S. administration? He said, well, yes, you know, we've seen some of your work. We've seen stuff that you've said. And um, some of it uh, the, in, 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 the, in the government, in the U.S. government, all the way to the top of government, it was told to me as bluntly, they want your voice behind the scenes to provide more balance and push back. And I was explained bluntly, they don't want only scientists around POTUS and in the administration that is just, would, would just say what people want to hear. They want people who are controversial, who are willing to look at the science properly and give a proper understanding of the science using your skills. So I said, okay, I'm coming. And they said, okay, well, how about tomorrow? We will meet you at the border. The border was closed. So they said, you drive there and we'll take you across and we'll begin the process. So I took my wife and my youngest child. I, I went to the U.S. border uh, in Fort Erie. It was as, as you think it was. There were no cars on the Canadian side, nothing on the U.S. side, just armed security moving around. So when I approached the border, it's very interesting. This, the, the, the customs, the immigration guy walked up to the car and he was armed and he, he, he looked at me and he said, what are you doing here? Because we had just closed all the borders. I said, well, I was actually a little scared because, you know, it was very intimidating. I said, well, X and X and X from the U.S. government told me to arrive here today and they're going to meet me at this time to take me into the U.S. So he, he looked at me as though I was like crazy and he said, well, Nobody didn't tell me that. So you, you need to put your car in reverse and turn around. And just as he was saying that, some customs immigration officers walked up to him, spoke to him, and then he turned around and looked at me and he opened the thing. And he said, come through. So I don't know who he was speaking to behind the scenes. So I drove through and then I met who I was supposed to meet. I saw them. I met them. We sat down in, in this black, it's like a movie, for a small island boy. Black suburban vehicle, I sat down in it and, and he spoke to me for about a couple hours. He said, we're going to take you down into Buffalo, vet you a little more. I went to an office building in Buffalo. My wife stayed at the border with a little one. They drove me there and then I'm sitting there and I could hear them speaking to people in the, in the White House. They're talking to them based on our conversation. They were asking me questions. They went through the whole thing. It was almost like an FBI check, like about terrorism, every single thing. And then at the end, they said, you know, we want to know if you'd be interested in joining the administration seriously. And I said, yeah. Um, I, I, at that point, I still thought it, was, it wasn't true. But they said, well, yes, and uh, you know, we'll give you one week. And you have to come to DC, blah, blah, blah. So I went. When I got there, it's very important that you know this, that the society does not know. The public does not know this, so I'm telling you. When I got there, it was told to me upfront that, well, it has been leaked in the media that um, the White House has hired a scientist, you, uh, to work in the communications office. And um, there's some outrage, and they're going to make your life hell from day one. My role was a technical role, not a political role, um, was to provide any technical support to these people. 
So I, you know, I had a conversation with my wife and I said, you know, it's very stressful in that office because there's really no support. The building was empty, it was this big building. There was a lot of military there with me because Operation Warp Speed, the vaccine was ramping up. It was staged in the floor above my floor. So it was soldiers everywhere. It was very tense. And um, because it's, the military had a role in the logistics of the vaccine. So from the beginning, the military had to be involved to arrange the logistics. So I told my wife, I'm going to try and ride it out day by day. And I did support, full disclosure, I'll say it on record. I supported President Trump philosophically because I appreciated what I was seeing in the news and what I actually came to know in D.C. in some things that were being done to help minority communities. I actually was seeing the programs and seeing what was, doing, what was going on behind the scenes. And I, and I told myself, you know, I, I come from an immigrant background. On my mother's side, a lot of my family are colored. You know, I, I am this color because of how things happen across generations. But, but that's my heritage and my background. And I said, um, you know, I like what this guy is doing and um, I appreciate it. So I, I will work for him. But as a scientist, when we talk about silence and scientists today, like Kuldorf and Bhattacharya and us, this is real. We really go through hell. We suffer our names and our careers. So what happened was the White House made this policy. At that point, we were like in August. And because the election was heating up, every week the president, his team, and this public knowledge, lays out the agenda for the week, where the president will be. Now that I can't discuss here how the president is going to be moving and where the president is going to be, what the president is going to be saying, so that if you are an official for the government, your message has to line up with the government. It can't be averse to what the president is saying because you're working for the president, the pleasure of the president. So they made this procedure at that point that the task force were going, all of the members were going on the news, CNN, CBS, ABC, every day. And on weekends, a lot of shows they were appearing. But a lot of what they were saying were against what Trump, President Trump was saying. So they made this rule where, from here on, any task force member who's going on the national media have to tell the White House and the communications office where they're going. We're not curtailing anybody but we are going to look at what you're saying. And if what you're going to discuss does not align with the president, we're going to have to ask you to ensure that, how should I say it? If, put it this way, the president, let's say on a particular week, was discussing the opening of schools. You can't go on the media. You work for the government, and you be advocating the closing of schools. So in my role, and other persons, we were to share with the task force what is the science to support what they're going to be saying. So we got an email. This is what started my situation. We got an email from the NIH, CDC, involved Dr. Fauci. And the email basically in general was saying that Dr. Fauci is going on the news this weekend, this show, this show, this show. And Dr. Fauci is going to be talking about schools closures, etc. So 
we were asked to comment. So I responded when I, my turn to comment, and I responded to the NIH, and I responded to everybody, CDC people, whomever was on that comment. It was a massive number of high-level officials. So I said, look, Dr. Fauci cannot go on the news and advocate for schools closing. This is in general what I said. Because the science does not support that position. And here's what the science says. And I attached about 10 studies. There was a study out of Sweden at that point. Martin Kulloff mentioned it earlier. Um, Ludvigsen was Dr. Ludvigsen. It looked at 1.95 million sweet kids, ages 0 to 16, followed them for the entire pandemic, no lockdowns, no masks, nothing. They found zero instances of death. Zero. In fact, the teachers did better at or better than people of, of other professions outside of teaching. And we knew that, I explained to them, that the teaching profession is probably the safest profession to be in because the median age in America is 41. Teachers are generally young and healthy. If you are an unhealthy person, you have a medical condition as a teacher, yes, exercise your option to work remotely. You, you, you make that arrangement. But to carte blanche, keep schools closed. When we had another study out of the French Alps by Danis et al., they looked at a, one child that was infected in France, moved around to three schools, contaminated 120 other people, teachers and students. They found not one instance of secondary transmission. So I, I went through every single study in my response and I said, this is the science. So if Dr. Fauci, this is my question, if Dr. Fauci is not aware of the science, can you please share the science with Dr. Fauci? Because if he's advocating to keep schools closed, there's no science today that I have seen that supports it, that they should not be advocating for keeping schools closed because you are suffering children. Listen, sexual abuse of children skyrocketed with the school closures. The school is the one place that sexual abuse and, 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 and physical abuse of children comes to the attention of the school often first. That is how we know what's going on in the home often. When you close schools, there were hundreds of thousands of cases that escaped capture, we, we, that we, we missed. We missed. We, we, had children, we had parents, husbands and wives, appearing. We were looking at the data. The news wouldn't report it. But you see, I, I, I knew the data. The news wouldn't report it because it would have given President Trump a positive look because he was pushing to open schools. They were keeping schools closed. We had data showing us from the different states that there were hus husbands and wives appearing at the emergency room with their child limp, unresponsive in their arms, telling the emergency room doctor, look, I I think I might have killed my child. Could you help me? And explain that I've been laid off. My husband's been laid off. We've been fighting each other now for a year, beating each other. And we beat the child, you know? So we knew the data. President Trump knew the data. That is why people saw him aggressively on the podium begging the country to reopen and the schools to reopen and fighting with the unions because he was seeing what we were seeing. And the media would not report it because then it would make Trump look good. So we were trying, I was trying everything I could to inform whomever the NIH and CDC, 
look, you know, you people are a little misguided because if you're talking about the science, you're not following the science. The science shows that you're wrong. Long and short of this was, after that email exchange, there was a high-level meeting on HHS, and there were people from CDC and, H and NIH that came, and after the meeting, I'm walking back to my cubicle office, and they were going to the elevator, and they walked with me. And two of them, I didn't even know these people, but they were in this meeting. You know, often you have this big high-level meeting, teleconference, and people take roll call, but you, they're like 50 people, you don't even know them. A lot of them were justice people, lawyers. You know, to, they're there to make sure you don't say anything wrong. Anyway, they were walking me and saying, you know, Paul, um, you know, we, we, we know that you're here and stuff, and we really like a lot of things that you say, and um, we actually agree with you. So I said, well, first of all, we're, I thought they were lawyers and said, no, we work at NIH and we're going. So I said, well, you know, thank you very much. And they said, well, we want to let you know something. Because of your pushback on the NIH and Dr. Fauci openly, they're going to smear and slander you. They have already gotten all of your unit's communications and they are going to pick a word or a line that you've written, not your entire communication, and they're going to create a story around that line. So I'm asking them, I said, well, how could I prevent that? They said, you can't prevent it. It's already done. The story is probably going to run in about four days. And exactly as they said, in about four days from that day, um, the news started to leak my emails. So that began in D.C. And the White House and everyone involved made sure they let me know and whomever I worked with and other people who were being attacked, like Dr. Atlas, etc. Do not respond to the media. Don't grant no interviews. Just write it out. But I have to tell you, I was in D.C. Where my apartment was, that was the Capitol building, and that was the White House. So I was in the nerve center of it. I had press outside my building. I had people calling the, the media. I don't know how they did it. They leaked my cell phone. They leaked. Press were calling me. People were calling my phone, sending me threatening emails, threatening my life, my wife, my little kid. What surprised me the most was faculty at McMaster. I was stunned. They were faculty at McMaster who were outraged that I worked for President Trump. So I'm sitting in DC and I didn't know what to do. I'm sharing with you. Um, I wanted to go home, it means home for me was Canada. But I, I'm thinking, how would I do this? You know, because I don't know if maybe if I get home, I might see people outside my door, you know, because that's how these people operate. And um, I was dealing with it in DC, and then I got moved around DC between Virginia, Maryland, back to DC for safety and security. So I was being helped for my safety, keep my family safe. And um, at one point, you know, just, just so that you understand, what the media writes about people is almost 99.5% untrue, often. And they did that to me. They tried to cancel Dr. Atlas. They've tried to cancel Dr. Bhattacharya. Um, many good professors, many good doctors in Canada. I'll give you Dr. Mark Trozzi, Dr. Francis Christian, Dr. Hoff, Dr. Kulvinda Gill. All these people I work with daily on early treatment. Why? because they advocated early treatment. And then I was told, because you are pushing, advocating for early outpatient treatment, even though we knew that it was effective, 
and it saved lives, that was off the table. And because you've done that, I had also written the FDA, high-level communication, where I laid out, you know, looking at the uh, clinical trial as it's going on, you know, I have been in government and stuff. I'd like to tell you that um, these are the flaws that I think are in the trial. I think that the trial, you must follow this, this trial longer term. The issue about talking about giving a emergency use authorization is such a small sample size, small number of events. And I went through the research methods with them. Said once you have less than 200 events, less than 300 events, there's a severe risk of overestimating of the treatment effect. We published those papers. I came from Elfmaster and we are purest methodologists. I laid out how wrong they were in rushing to an EAU. And I said, you know, what are the surveillance that you need to implement? The surveillance systems to follow the safety events long term. So I was on the chopping block for, it's almost as though the bullseye was in between my eyes. And uh, I, I, it, was, it was the most horrible experience ever, especially with my, my experience at McMaster, because McMaster reached out to me and told me, because I mean, you're Canadian, so I'll explain to you what they did. They said, Paul, we have the entire media in Canada want an interview. Um, I said, well, I can't give no interview to nobody. I, I, White House has told me I can't speak to anybody. Then they said, they want to interview people in the university. I said, well, I can't stop that. All of a sudden, I started to get emails and calls from professors from Oxford, because I attended Oxford, uh, who were my professors back then. I even forgot who they were telling me, Paul, you know, this media person sent me an email and wanted to ask me questions about you, what type of person you were, you know, did, did I ever see anything odd about you? And you were just my scientific student. So one, this person actually supervised my thesis. I don't have anything negative to say. What should I tell them? I said, well, you just tell them the truth. They communicated. They went into all my published literature, all of the studies I published, and they're mu numerous. And they, they found all of the co-authors that I co-authored with. And they communicated with them, asking them things about me. Is this a good guy? You know, did he ever do anything wrong to you? Nobody had anything negative to say about me. But it is the most catastrophic thing, devastating to you, to know that I am living in Canada. This is my home. Now I'm outside, and you have the press in Canada like in a frenzy. They just want a story. They just, they just want to write something. And they're not... They're not investigating it properly to know the truth. And um, it just went on and on. And then by around the end of September, I couldn't take it much more. And, and I'll be straightforward. I'll tell you on the inside. The White House called me and told me that just you just keep not responding to the press. We are going to bring you into the White House in two weeks, move you out of HHS, and bring you there. And that will be it. By then, there will be another story. Turns out, next day, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, sadly. And from my point of view, I got communications from the White House and said, they pretty much told me and other persons that now you're going to be off the front page because now they have another story to deal with. And that's exactly what happened. It stopped right there. 
But I was so frustrated. I was so angry as to what I went through. I wasn't interested in going to the White House. I wasn't interested in anything anymore. I still supported Trump. I still did. I still do. That's a separate discussion. But I left. I gave my resignation at the end of September, and that was it. And when I left and I went back to Canada immediately, um, people like Dr. Rich, Dr. McCullough, different people across the world wrote me and said, you know, we saw what you were going through and stuff, but we don't want to waste your intelligence and your ability. We want to, we're working on early treatment, we're working on different issues, and we want you to join our teams. So I joined about six different research groups, electronically and by teleconference, and I realized I need to keep my mind busy to just help me begin some kind of healing from what I went through. And um, so that's what I've been active in early treatment, writing all these papers, consulting, interviewing on Fox, wherever, just to keep me sane. Because it is true that it is very difficult for you to go through that situation, come out of it normal anymore. Because, because they literally, they take your life and they try to burn you down. And it is a terrible situation. So I'll give you an example. In one of my communications, I am discussing that um, the best situation for children, healthy children, well children, is to allow them to be exposed. But I didn't mean deliberately. I meant harmlessly, as part of their normal life. Open schools, let them live normally. The data has shown us clearly. I just cited some studies. The children were not at risk. So let them live normal lives. You're masking them. You're weakening their immune systems. They're going to have all sorts of medical conditions in the future because the immunity, the immune system doesn't work that way. It must be tuned and taxed up daily. Children's immune system have to be within the school environment so they it could remain tuned up and they could deal with pathogen normally. By you locking them down, we are going to create, I am guaranteeing you, by around December of this that year and next year, you're going to have examples of conditions that we have dealt with and, and tamped down. It's going to flare up again because children's immune systems, we have weakened it. We've taken it offline. So what they did was they took lines and they leaked it. And they said, oh, this is Dr. Alexander saying, let all the children be infected. I never said that. I never meant that. They did not leak my entire email. That's the key. And... Um, I just have to say one thing, that um, the occasions that I went to the White House to actually have meetings, the people that I've met, the people that I dealt with at the highest levels are good people. I had meetings with Dr. Peter Navarro. He was one of President Trump's um, right-hand people, brilliant individual, very, very good advocate. He was one of the advocates for early treatment, somebody I admire greatly. But the other parts of my experience was just a disaster. And um, sometimes people write me and say, you know, we don't know how you continued. And like you have, you're not so bitter and stuff. And I have to say I am. But we also, we're in a huge battle here. And right now, I am probably with a few other people waging the present battle against vaccines in children. Because we've realized that children bring such low risk to the table statistical zero risk 
and the vaccines have shown now to have some problems, then why would we vaccinate children and put them at potential risk for the rest of their life? So this is a hill that I'm on right now battling, and I'll continue on. I think this is a worthy cause, and um, this is where I am. And uh, I've been writing for year. I wrote for year year before, and I got all of my work, not all, but some with Jeffrey, Doc, uh, Jeffrey Tucker. And um, when he shifted to Brownstone, and I knew he was going there. You know, I had such I have such admiration for him. I told him, you know, I want to write for you, and. Um, these are the, the, the different uh, topics and stuff, and um, I started to send stuff to him, and uh, some of it got published, and um, here's where we are. Our team reached out to HHS, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, but we did not immediately receive a response. Well, very briefly, I want to, you know, you're part of a number of initiatives right now, and I want to I wanna get you to tell me about those, in addition to Brownstone, of course. Um, just very briefly, give me the reality around vaccines in children. There's no evidence available. If you look at the sum total of the evidence, and um, I challenge Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Francis Collins of NIH, who heads the NIH, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who heads CDC. I challenge any of them collectively to meet me any place, any office building, let us sit down and debate what evidence that they have to show that children are at such risk that they warrant these vaccines. And I can tell you they won't take me up on it because there is none. The issue with the children with vaccines is this. Children generally have been spared. You can see that. You can see based on the science and the data that Children have been spared from COVID. COVID is not seasonal influenza. Influenza is very harsh on children, but not COVID. And to be honest, I wrote an op-ed, it was published in uh, Defender and also Brownstone, that I made the argument, a clear statement, that we must consider that children are already vaccinated and immune. And um, I made that argument by looking at the science, and I pulled six studies. Patel showed us that children have limited ACE2 receptors in their nostrils. And it's that receptor that the virus uses to gain access to the cell. The S1 subunit docks first, gets cleaved, exposes the S2 subunit, and the virus gets into the cell to begin the replication. That's number one. This helps explain, at least partly, why children are at such low risk? There's a molecular basis for this. It is legitimate and is an age stratified risk that you could see from the data they published that only when you get older into adults, etc., that the ACE2 receptors are expressed, means produced at higher levels in the nostrils that allows for higher levels of infection. I also found research by Lois et al. I remember this research, if I can recollect, correctly, they showed in their study that children bring a, a pre-activated innate immunity. It's, all, it's already primed and sensitized to SARS-CoV-2, to the virus, that it allows children, their, their response to be very nimble and quick. I also found research by Yang et al. 
that looked at um, children's prior exposure to common cold coronaviruses, so the B-cell immunity. And uh, I also found research by Weisberg and Faber that showed that uh, the T-cell response in children is so naive and untrained that it puts the children's response to SARS-CoV-2 in a much stronger footing than even an adult. There was also research coming out of Yale that showed that there were particular immune molecules called uh, um, interferon gamma and interleukin 17A that children have a higher um, volume of it, expression of it, much so than adults. And, and their research showed that because of that, children have a much better response to SARS-CoV-2. So collectively, I was saying, look, it's not just because of the epidemiology we saw in the Swedish study that showed you expose children in a school setting. Epidemiologically, there were no deaths. The Danis et al. study, and I wrote an op-ed with 50 different studies, comparative studies that showed with the school closures, etc., that children bring almost zero risk to the table. So why would you, when you marry that epidemiology plus the molecular evidence that I presented, I said, well, we have to consider children are immune. They're already vaccinated. Don't touch them. Leave them alone. And I'll end by saying Dr. Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins, he's one of the top epidemiologists. He's always in the media. I actually think he's a smart guy. I don't agree with some things that he says, but generally he's very technically sound, and I admire him tremendously. He clamored with the CDC to, to ask them, those instances of children who've died in America, that you, the CDC says, died due to COVID, you pegged the COVID, COVID to the death. We want to see whether COVID was incidental or causal. The CDC has refused to provide the detail. His team, and it's been published, his team looked at the deaths, and he has reported that they can't find one instance of a child that was not ill, severely ill, that CDC says died due to COVID. So that makes you understand that we're not dealing with well children. Listen, I'm a parent. I, my youngest is 12. The death of a child is probably the most catastrophic thing you could, things you can ever experience, and I don't know how a parent lives. So this is a very delicate discussion to have, but we need to be based on the science here. We need to follow. You cannot be making policies where you're scaring parents into taking this vaccine that you have not studied. The vaccine is showing that it's not working against the Delta. We do not know the, the harm. We already know the harms in terms of the teens with myocarditis, etc. And myocarditis is not a rare or mild issue. When those teens who've got myocarditis now, that we've found and reported in VAERS, and it's been in the news, those cases, when the doctor provides them support and treatment and they get through their bout, the problem is we know that myocarditis comes knocking again in 20, 25 years when they're 30, 35, 40, and they're the prime of their life beginning their family because myocarditis damages the myocardi myocardium. It damages, scars the heart muscle. The heart muscle doesn't rejuvenate. So the cardiac reserve, etc., is lost. They're going to have a problem, most likely, in the future. And I have seen data that suggests that for severe cases of myocarditis, the five-year outlook to 10 years, about 50% death. 
so the bottom line is this. They cannot, they have not prosecuted the case as to why children must be vaccinated. They tried to tell us, Dr. Fauci, a few months ago, well, we do not know if we can get to herd immunity, so we need children as part of the equation. If you could recollect, that's what, that was his argument. Well, for him to have gotten there, he needed to discount the 15 to 20% of people who, in the population, who already have cross reactive cross-protective immunity from common cold coronaviruses. He needed to discount the 50 to 60% of people who are COVID recovered from the, from the equation. He needs to discount the people who have already been vaccinated and have some immunity. So to say that you need children in that mix to move to population level immunity is actually, to me, so deceitful and, and so, so duplicitous to, that, that you would scare. And when was it in history that we use children to protect adults? We use adults to protect children always. Children were never to be in this equation. Influenza is a far worse condition for children. RSV virus is a far worse condition, not SARS-CoV-2. And if you go ahead to vaccinate children where we have already seen the risk due to myocarditis, we run the risk of turning children because what we are seeing now in Israel and UK into asymptomatic super spreaders also. So we run the risk of harming children. Remember, and this is the key, my argument is children have a natural protection because of the fact that we found out that they have limited ACE2 receptors in their nostrils. We understand that. That is a fact by Patel et al. That, that was the research group published in JAMA. Now, if you bypass this natural protection, this is my hypothesis, or this is what I've communicated. Why would we bypass the natural protection here and introduce the vaccine into the deltoid in the arm? We have the studies now. We have the evidence. There was a FOIA uh, request, Japanese FOIA request that shows that the contents of the vaccine, 75% of the vaccine, leaves the deltoid lymphoid area and enters the circulation. We know that. There was a study by Ogata et al. from Harvard that showed that they found spike, the actual spike in the bloodstream soon after the vaccination, at least for two weeks. Now there's some new research by Dr. Patterson, groundbreaking research, Patterson et al. He shows that he has detected the S1 subunit spike in the bloodstream from COVID, the, from COVID recovered persons, persons who had COVID in the blood 15 months post, that makes you understand that if the persons who've had COVID have spike in their blood for 15 months, remember the spike is pathogen, it's the, it's the dangerous part of the virus. If you have spike and remnants of it in your blood 15 months, and he's shown this, it is most likely, to me almost 100%, with vaccine, you're going to also have spike in the blood. So the question then becomes, why would you bypass this natural mechanism, this natural safety that children have with limited ACE2? We've seen that they don't get infected readily. Why would you now forcefully introduce the vaccine into the deltoid, get that vaccine content into the blood system? We've seen all of these deaths in adults and the adverse events in adults. The argument can be made that if you introduce this vaccine into the arm of children, 
they're going to show debts just like adults. They have not shown the debts today because they've been spared from the virus because of their natural protection. If you now introduce the vaccine here, enters the bloodstream, that same spike that people like Dr. Malone, Robert Malone, Dr. Mike Eden, Dr. Good Van den Bosch, uh, Dr. McCullough, all of these people, when we look at the other, Dr. Uh, Patrick Whelan, pediatric, pediatric specialist, that the spike actually damages the vascular layer, the endothelial layer that lines the vasculature of all of your blood vessels. That's the, that's the problem we have. That, put it this way, the evidence seems to suggest today that COVID is, is less of a respiratory illness. It's a vascular illness. In other words, when persons die of end-stage COVID, they don't die because there's virus in the lung. They die because there are blood clots in the lung. There are very minute microtrombi across the blood that you need to introduce antiplatelet, anticoagulation drugs, high-dose um, aspirin, heparin, etc., to thin the blood because it's the microtrombi that causes the disaster and the desaturation and the lack of oxygen and the failure for gas exchange, etc., and the problems with your breathing. So the question is, if a child has shown us that they, they don't readily get infected today and we've found the molecular basis because of the limited ACE2, we found the low study with the, 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 the pre-activated antiviral um, innate immune system, we found the positive B cell response, the T cell response, prior exposure to coronaviruses, we have all these studies. Why would you now introduce a vaccine that in adults, we are having reports and instances of people have died from the vaccine and the spike protein that you produce cellularly as part of the immune response is the endothelial pathogen. It can damage the vasculature, it can damage the endothelium, it can cause blood clots, bleeding, etc. This is not my statements. This is what is accumulating now in the evidence. It's there, it's published. So my question is, leave the children alone, my statement. If you cannot, here's the key here. Dr. Fauci, Dr. Walensky, Dr. Francis Collins, all of the vaccine manufacturers must come to the table and put liability protection on the table and remove it. The only person who's exposed here for harm is the children. All of these vaccine developers and all of these alphabet agencies have liability protection. That's one thing, I ha a, a concern I have from something that President Trump did under the, under the, the, the um, I believe it was the PrEP Act. These people have been absolved from liability. Now, if you stand by this vaccine, Dr. Walensky and Dr. Collins and Dr. Fauci, if you say these vaccines are safe for my children, if you stand by them, you come to the table and you put liability protection on it and you say, I'm going to remove it. Because only then can a parent be confident. Right now, you are absolved from being sued. All of the vaccine companies, that's the protection they, they have. Why would I expose my child? You have no exposure. So remove your protection. Give me some confidence as a parent. Then we could talk about vaccinating my child. I know they won't do that, but I'm telling you that's the issue. Remove the liability protection. 
then we will talk about vaccinating children. Until then, leave them alone. Well, this is a very appropriate place to finish up, but before we do that, please let us know. I know you have a new, this new Unity initiative with yes. uh, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Yes. Um, I know that you have your own uh, website. Where, you're, where, where can people find, because you have a incredible, I guess, uh, set of literature that you've yes. compiled yes. and people are going to want to see these papers that you're talking about. Yes. So tell me about these initiatives and where do people look? Yes, thank you very much for this opportunity. So my website, uh, where I publish a lot of uh, the op-eds and a lot of the research, particularly on early treatment, it's uh, drpaulalexander.com. No caps, no spaces. So that's drpaulalexander.com. Um, P-A-U-L-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R, drpaulalexander.com. I've also um, teamed up with um, uh, Mr. Jeff Hansen out of California, and he's formed this Unity Project where he brought scientists like Dr. McCullough, Dr. Cariotti, as you said, uh, Dr. Robert Malone, myself together uh, to try and fight this issue on the vaccines for children. So I'm part of that and um, it's the Unity Project and uh, it's just gotten off the ground, but um, uh, from what I'm seeing already, it's going to be doing great things in California and hopefully it will transcend the country. And, um, you know, I will end by just saying a lot of good doctors and scientists Dr. Bhattacharya, Dr. Kuldoff, myself, etc. We've been attacked and smeared by the media. And often it's just because we are trying to bring a balanced look at everything. We are looking at all of the evidence so that the population could be informed. It's a terrible situation that, that you could attack dissenting persons and people who raise questions and we are skeptics because we want a balanced approach and a full reporting so that the public can make properly, proper informed decisions. Well, Dr. Paul Alexander, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you.